Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I am Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, how much for the camel? The blind camel? Yeah. Well, we'll find out. Uh, well, we have a bit of a special film this week, a film that some might say is biographical of us. Mm, right. Two hack frauds get uh, tangled in a spy movie. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's the uh, Spy Hearts film right there. I mean, uh, this movie, which we won't re- reveal at the moment quite yet, was not a success, and I think our movie would be even less successful. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, and we're not a success. I was like, oh, (laughs) that either. Okay. (laughs) Well, define success, Cam. Sure. Well, I'll throw it to you, Cam. What are we talking about this week? We are talking about 1987's Ishtar, a fairly legendary film starring Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman and directed and written by Elaine May. Now we'll get into who Elaine May is and how this film is so notorious. But if you've never heard of Ishtar before, here is your letterbox.com synopsis. Ishtar. Telling the truth can be dangerous business. Two terrible lounge singers, just like I was there, get booked to play a gig in a Moroccan hotel, but somehow become pawns in an international power play between the CIA, the Emir of Ishtar, and a rebel trying to overthrow his regime. Dun dun dun. That's a pretty good song up to this. I, I can't fault that. No, no, I mean, I think. There's a lot of other things I can fault. <laughs> it, it's one of those things that's kind of lame when it comes to synopses when you are giving one for a comedy. Mm. It's like comedies depend entirely on what's funny or what makes you laugh. And when you read a synopsis, you're like, yes, that is a, a, a dry description of what the movie's about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's fair. Well, I'm I'm not gonna critique that. I think it was a fine synopsis, but I'll I'll start us off on this like, do we know section because I only ever heard of Ishtar as a whisper. Sure. In in our spy network group and on Twitter and on Facebook, people have mentioned Ishtar from time to time as having some spy connections and being an interesting film for many a reason. But I'd never seen it. But Cam, had you ever ventured into the Moroccan desert? I had never seen Ishtar. It was one of those movies that was very legendary as an all-time, you know, massive studio bomb. Uh, it was the butt of a butt of jokes for a long time to come. I remember there was a famous Far Side cartoon. Far Side was yeah. a popular comic strip where it was Hell's Video Store, and it was just all copies of Ishtar. So, like, I was very aware of this movie, and also because when I did get into tracking sort of movie press when I was about 13 or so. It's around the year 1992, 1993. In the next year or so, that is when um, Waterworld is going through its very expensive, much uh, publicized production. And they started referring to the movie as Fishtar. And so I became <laughs> quite aware as, as to what Ishtar was because of the writing and all of the uh, criticism surrounding uh, Waterworld. And I, I mean, I uh, don't mind Waterworld too much. It's not great, but it's not awful. No, I'm at the same boat. I'm actually, I mean, it's been a long time since I watched Waterworld. I guess we could do that on the Patreon, I suppose. But um, it doesn't explain the guild hands you have. 
<laughs> it wasn't his hands that were gilled, I don't think. Wasn't it? I don't think so. I think it was he had like gills in his neck, didn't he? I thought he had like webbed hands. Oh, maybe he had webbed hands and gills just behind his ears. Oh, uh, that was probably it. I, I probably used gills incorrectly. I'm sorry, everyone. All the Waterworld fans here are turning off at this time at this point. Someone needs to do some Mariner cosplay. Um yeah. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> <laughs> that was a movie that I remember going to see in theaters and enjoying watching a few times at home and enjoying but I am curious if I were to watch it now if I would feel otherwise because I was about 18 16 years old when I was watching Waterworld yeah I think I was probably around about the same I or maybe like you know 12 13 when it came out I think we rented it from Blockbuster and we were like yeah this is family entertainment I guess yeah, and the Waterworld stunt show at Universal Studios is totally badass. So it spawned that. Can't complain. I still remember like seeing a guy getting like drowned in mud and stuff or something like that. I think that sticks in my mind. Okay. Yeah, there's like a torture pit at some point. There's a guy in like a cage gets lowered into it. Oh, that does ring a bell. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's, uh, it's 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 jumping to my memory more than some of the spy films we've covered on the show so far. <laughs> this is turning into a celebration of Waterworld. <laughs> Fish ta, fish ta, <laughs> and I remember they also uh, referred to that movie as Kevin's Gate, um, because the movie because Heaven's, Heaven's Gate had Gate. been a big bomb, and so yeah, Kevin Costner, yeah. Mm. I, I I think Fish Tar is slightly wittier, but you'd never you'd never Ishtar though. No, it wasn't a movie that, to my experience, aired on TV a lot. I think I saw a commercial for it once, maybe when it was playing on TV, because there was a few moments of imagery when I was watching the movie yesterday that I recognized from commercials. But I don't even think this movie had a DVD release. Ooh. Like, it was kind of buried. It was on VHS, obviously. Um, but it was one that for a long time was just kind of quietly tucked away and in recent years has had <laughs> one of the grandest of reappraisals uh. where, you know, you know, head on over to Letterboxd and it's a sea of four and five star reviews and... A lot of very fond writings about it being one of the great masterworks of comedy. Are they uh, are they watching the same cut that I watched? I don't know. I was listening to a podcast today, a very respected podcast, Blank Check, and they were just talking about how it's absolute genius. Absolute okay. genius. Well, I think we've both given away a little bit about what we think about this film, but... <laughs> there's good stuff to it. Don't get me wrong. This is not a complete... like I, I'm yeah. not instantly disavowing this film. This is not trench coat. Well, I was going to say, and that was setting up a joke. Thank you. So you were saying this film didn't get a DVD release. I'm just saying that the VHSs were probably buried in the desert with E.T. in trench coat. <laughs> I don't even know if trench coat made it to VHS. It was on like a re reel somewhere. <laughs> Betamax, probably. <laughs> Beta tapes. <laughs> but only here because we didn't use them. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I suppose then we need to talk about how we got this cinematic failure. What happened? How did we get to the desert? <laughs> and get lost in the desert. <laughs> well, yeah, how did we get lost into Ishtar Camp? <laughs> so it starts with Elaine May. And I think she's a big part of the reason this movie's had so many reappraisals. Um, I think sure. there is a certain amount of appreciation now for a female auteur working at a very difficult time to be a female auteur mm -hmm. who made you know a handful of movies and really had her career ended with a very costly bomb and kind of that wondering like what could have been what did she bring to film that was interesting so i do think a lot of the appreciation of ishtar surrounds her 
And she was a um, comedian. And early in her career, she met up with a guy named Mike Nichols. And they formed a comedy team called Nichols and May. And they worked mostly on improv sketches. And they exploded. They wound up on Broadway. They won a Grammy for Best Comedy Album. They were incredibly influential, incredibly popular. And after a few years of working together, they dissolved their partnership to go their separate ways. Nichols went on and directed a number of big movies like The Graduate, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Birdcage, um, Working Girl. Very, very popular director in the kind of the annals of American film. And Elaine May went in sort of some different directions. She did some acting. She popped up in The Graduate, for example, in a small role. But she was also a very acclaimed writer starting in the mid-60s and worked on a number of screenplays and then also got into directing in the early 70s and directed in 1971 a Walter Matthau comedy called A New Leaf, which was well-regarded, followed it up with a movie called The Heartbreak Kid starring Charles Grodin that uh, was remade, I think, terribly a few years ago but the original heartbreak kid was very popular big hit and then she did a movie called mikey and nikki with peter falk that was not particularly successful but reasonably well reviewed if you look it up it seems people actually quite like mikey and nikki but following that like she wasn't kind of into directing she kind of went back more to writing because i think mikey and nikki just kind of took it out of her and so she started a collaboration shortly after with Warren Beatty, where they worked together on the screenplay for Heaven Can Wait, which turned into a mega hit. Um, it was an Oscar nominee for Best Picture. She was nominated for Best Screenplay alongside Beatty. And so that sort of forged their relationship. And shortly after Heaven Can Wait, Warren Beatty moved into the movie Reds, which was like a big epic. He directed it. He won the Best Director Oscar in the year 1982 for it. Mm -hmm. And Elaine May came over as a script doctor and really helped him figure out how to tell that story. It wasn't really credited work, but he regarded her efforts as being invaluable to the success of Reds. So there was a very tight friendship there and a very uh, fruitful collaboration. One year after Reds, she goes and does uncredited rewrites on a script for Tootsie, which, of course, is a Dustin Hoffman film that turns into a mega hit. Okay. And Dustin Hoffman regarded her as being instrumental to the success of Tootsie. So right there, you kind of have a sense of how the two leads of Ishtar wound up being the leads of Ishtar. It's, it's all lining up at the moment. It's a recipe for success? Well, you have like three of the brightest talents in Hollywood <laughs> together. Mm -hmm. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> So shortly after the release of Reds, Warren Beatty went on a trip to Costa Rica and he brought Elaine May and writer Peter Feebleman. Um, and they came up with the idea of like a political comedy set in South America. And it kind of proved unworkable. But Beatty was so like, I think, energized. And that was the Ishtar script. <laughs> Beatty was so energized just by shooting these ideas back and forth. And he really loved Elaine May. And he basically offered to produce anything she could write and direct. And Warren Beatty had a lot of power at this point coming off of Reds and Heaven Can Wait. So the idea of him producing something would mean that he had enough clout to get it made. And so they were having dinner in New York at one point, And Elaine May pitched the idea to Beatty and their lawyer um, 
for what would become Ishtar, and she was really inspired by the Bob Hope, Bing Crosby road movies of the 40s, 50s, and into the early 60s. These are movies that were incredibly popular, Scott. I've never seen one. I mean, we've only got one experience with old Bob Hope, and that's not been great. Yeah, I mean, my favorite spy I don't think is held up as one of the great Bob Hope vehicles, but there was this whole series of road movies where these two incredibly charismatic, funny guys would go on the road and have wacky adventures, typically in foreign locales. I need to watch a couple of these because they are so often referenced by, you know, acclaimed filmmakers when they're talking about what inspired their work. Well, it, it's probably just like the films you would be watching in the 40s and 50s and 60s. It's, it's just something that it sounds like something that was just on telly. Yeah, probably. Yeah, like just gets played a lot. They probably if it's Bob Hope, it's it's very like family orientated. I would have thought. And also Bing Crosby. You know, beloved icon, yeah. A lot of very popular mainstream entertainment. So that was kind of the kernel of what she was aiming for. And also, talking to Beatty, they were both kind of inspired because Warren Beatty had worked as a struggling cocktail bar piano player in his younger years. So, like, there was a little bit of kind of, what if we put that with this and expanded upon it? And probably that original South American political kind of concept kind of tying that more to like a middle eastern story Mm -hmm. yeah i I can see the genesis Mm -hmm. coming along it already seems like too many things going on but you could still you could still score with that of course yes and warren Beatty at the time was developing a howard hughes film and he took like six years off after uh, reds before he came back for ishtar so he was developing this movie based on howard hughes which got made like six or seven years ago as a movie called Rules Don't Apply. Um, but it tells you how long that Howard Hughes movie sat around before Warren Beatty got to it. Beatty wasn't in that though, right? He was, yeah. He played Howard Hughes. Oh, wow. He he really went into hiding. He did, yeah. So he put aside the Howard Hughes film to star in a movie that was at the time called Bl- uh, Blind Camel. That title, of course, changed. Oh, wow. What's better? Ishtar or Blind Camel. There was a third title I found as well called Beirut Hilton. That was another one that popped up. Well, that that's the worst of the three. Yes, I agree. Actually, I I think Ishtar is probably the best uh title. Blind Camel has a comedic edge to it, which I think this film's trying to do. But I think Ishtar's quite provocative. Like, oh, what what's an Ishtar? But or would people see that title and be like, I don't know what that means. I could see both happening, and I think maybe both did happen. Yeah. Um. So Warren Beatty also loved the idea of working with Dustin Hoffman, who mm-hmm. took a little bit of convincing but jumped on board, and also loved the idea of them swapping sort of typecasting parts because the idea of Warren Beatty playing like a nerdy guy who can't get women was like a really fun idea because Warren Beatty, of course, was one of the big dream boats in Hollywood at this time era, known to be this womanizer. And still. <laughs> Not still. Now he's a settled down married man. But back in those Dick days. Dick Tracy, have some respect. <laughs> you mean Dick Tracy zooms in the recent uh, Turner Classic movie special? Yeah. <laughs> he's actually joining us later in the show. I would love it. <laughs> yeah. So, like, that to Warren Beatty was very appealing. And this movie got press 
even before they like started shooting, you know, on location or anything like that, because they announced mm-hmm. the budget being between thirty to forty-five million. Which in nineteen eighty-six, probably this would have been announced. That's a lot of money for a comedy, and it was also heavily promoted that both stars would get five million each, even though not as reported. Both of them offered to defer their upfront salaries to help with the production costs. So they didn't even ask to be paid that much. It was just so something that Elaine and the producers sorted out. Well, in those days, Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman are going to be, they're two of the biggest stars in Hollywood, so they're going to get big paychecks. Oh, no, but if they offered to not be paid that, yeah. then they don't, I, I would imagine any studio would be like, oh, you don't want to get paid? Okay. It's all sure, agents. I'll keep that. It's Thanks. all agents negotiating these things. Sure. I mean, they're all getting their cut, aren't they? Yeah. And the production turned into a nightmare. And yeah. Part of the problem was, you know, the New York stuff. I know Dustin Hoffman felt very strongly the whole movie should be set in New York. They filmed that stuff after the whole section in Morocco. But Dustin Hoffman still to this day says we should have just kept the whole thing in New York. But it turned into location nightmares, really, where there was a real sense, if you look at behind-the-scenes reports, that Elaine May was not necessarily up to a movie of this scale and size, this massive star-driven, very expensive vehicle that was shot on locations. Um, The studio, Columbia, wanted to shoot it on the back lot, but she insisted Mm -hmm. on Morocco. And it turned into a lot of problems in Morocco where she did not deal well with the sun, did a lot of her directing from a tent because she just could not cope with the sun. And even like one of the practices that she would do she would get the actors to perform the scenes 50 times in front of three rolling cameras without any direction. Right. So, okay. So they have to just sort of feel their own way through the scene? I don't want to, like, dismiss this as a directorial technique. Um, I will say it seems like it's very expensive to do if you're rolling three cameras because you're using film, not digital. That makes a lot more sense now. (laughs) Yeah, digital, you can do a bunch of takes. Go for it, sure. But film costs money. Like, I know uh, Nicholas Meyer was always a fan of doing tons of takes to get a lot out of his actors. But again, Mm -hmm. that is expensive. And also, Nicholas Meyer has a large body of work to sort of be like, well, it clearly worked for me. And you can look at, like, Stanley Kubrick or David Fincher. They have a similar approach, which is they get the actors sometimes to do, like, 100 takes of something because their their approach is that they want the actor to stop acting, to kind of beat out all of yeah. the, the ticks they might have or what they're trying to bring of their own personality and get them to, to a point where they just settle into it and start performing it naturally. I wonder how much of this is because mm-hmm. Elaine May come, came from a world of improv and it was more like, I want to see what can happen. I want to see where they take it. Well, and I also kind of want to preface early on, and you and I are, are not known for this, but we are aware that this is two white dudes dunking on a female director in a time when there wasn't many female directors, and frankly, there still aren't, No, uh, really getting the credit that they deserve. That being said, I don't know where she was coming from with that idea. Like, I really... Well, there's a lot of things I've got written down. And and you say about the 50 takes. One of the biggest notes, and I think I've written it three times in my notes. Maybe I'm jumping ahead to my thoughts. But it's inmates running the asylum. And I know that a lot of the criticism, um, she got obviously the brunt of it. But many felt also that Warren Beatty, as the producer, sure. should have stepped in at a certain point. 
but he had so much respect for Elaine May. She was a close friend and someone he really believed in yeah. that he wasn't comfortable doing so. And sort of like uh, it created a situation where things began to spiral out of control and no one really wanted to kind of take the reins. Also, and also take the blame. Yeah, that as well. Yeah. Yeah, I I get it. I get it. I get it. It's just, it's just a sorry situation, I suppose. It is. And I mean, regardless of what we're about to say about Ishtar when we get to our review, like <laughs> Elaine May has a incredibly just jaw dropping uh, list of credits to her name. It's just that maybe the project that was the most expensive that had the biggest impact on her future film career is the one that people tend to talk about when they talk about her now. Well, they say go big or go home. She yeah. certainly gave it a punt. Exactly. Yes. And so this movie turned into an editing nightmare um, because Much of... like this show. <laughs> Believe me. As the editor, I can attest to this. <laughs> Wait, am I, am I the Elaine May of the show? Or am I the Warren Beatty? I can't, I can't figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I think um, that's an excellent question because I don't know. I don't know. I think we are a combination of both. It's just <laughs> we are a single entity representing both you should see how many takes i made uh, cam do of that last sentence (laughs) so this movie as i said editing nightmare there was 108 hours of film that came back to the editing room which is about 108 (laughs) which is about hours three times um more than your average comedy like i get i get improv and i get like multiple takes but 108 hours i i (laughs) I'm just trying to think how much that costs in film. It's I don't a know lot. What the, the ratio is, but that's got to be a lot. Yeah, it's a and lot. Plus, like they're filming in Morocco, transportation shipment. That's a, <laughs> oh my lord! <laughs> and they had three teams of editors working on the movie. Three teams. <laughs> you need one editor for a Bond film. What are they doing? <laughs> and so, part of the problem also was that you had three different people who had visions because. Uh, Elaine May obviously had her editing team, but also Warren Beatty had his, and Dustin uh, Hoffman, who's also known to be quite um, controlling with the movies he's working on, also had an edit option. Are they all in the same room just sharing the reels with each other? It seems like it, yes, because um, they said at one point like someone had to go in and basically act as the mediator for all the editing teams. Right. Wow. Yeah. This... this, I mean, are these sort of stories leaking to the press before it's launched? Oh, like, is that- yeah. Oh, the press followed this one very closely. No, like throughout production, the press was following this, and they were very aware of this whole editing aspect. Um, the knives were out for this movie. Right. Like across the board. And it's worth noting as well that when it was, you know, greenlit and going into production, it was a different head of Columbia Studios than was the person releasing the movie at the end of the day. Classic. Like the Avengers. Classic. Yes. And so Warren Beatty has said that the new head of the studios, uh, David Putnam, wanted it to fail. And he really lamented that there was a real lack of support for Elaine May's vision. So this was definitely the classic case of regime change and a expensive and complicated production. It looks like Putnam got his wish tar. <laughs> so this movie had a budget of $55 million, and it opened at number one, Scott, at the box office opening weekend. People think okay. Ishtar, disaster right out of the gate. Nope. It opened at number one, 
and then plummeted very, very quickly. And it came to a domestic total of $14.4 million. Ouch. Yeah. What, did, what was the international, though? I don't know. The numbers okay. are so small that there's they aren't reported online. My guess is, after this absolutely tanked in North America, the studio was not willing to put a lot of money into opening this internationally. Right, they chucked it in the desert with E.T. and trench coat. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, sure. when you look at the worldwide box office for that year, it lands at number 73 between two good horror movies, Hellraiser and John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. I haven't seen Prince of Darkness, but I have seen Hellraiser, and I do like that film. The key to Hellraiser and Prince of Darkness, they were cheaper to make than this one. <laughs> yeah. I bet they made money, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you don't have to make as much money when your costs are lower. 50, uh, $55 million for a comedy in 1987, that's really expensive. So I thought I'd actually look up the budget of uh, 2016's Central Intelligence, the uh, Kevin Hart, Dwayne The Rock Johnson comedy spy film from uh, you know, 20, 30 years later. Guess how much the budget was? 60 million? 50. So it's the exact, or it's less than Ishtar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it grossed in the US alone 127 million. I remember in 1994, they released a movie. It was a remake of Love Affair starring Warren Beatty. Right. And it really was a, a real bomb. But it was just kind of a romantic drama. And I think it cost like a hundred something million dollars, which was like insane and no one could understand why. Well, where does all the money on this film go apart from the reels and reels and reels of film? Is it just location shooting? I think it's location shooting, yeah. I mean, you lose 10 million on paying Beatty and uh, Hoffman. Yeah. There's still 40 left to go. I think it's all production costs. It's bananas. It's bananas. Anyway. Yeah. So the top three for the year, number one was Three Men and a Baby, which I'm sure cost a lot less for a comedy. And uh, number two was Fatal Attraction. And number three was Beverly Hills Cop 2. And I believe actually Beverly Hills Cop 2 was responsible for knocking Ishtar out of the top spot at the box office and probably dominating the earnings at that point. I literally watched Beverly Hills Cop 1 yesterday. Hmm. It's just It was on Netflix and I was bored. Great film. Yeah, I really liked the first one. Not as big on the yeah. sequels. I don't think I've seen the sequels. I've only ever seen the first one a couple of times. I feel like they're pretty diminishing returns. It seems to be mostly that way with 80s comedies. Yeah. Police Academy. Definitely Police Academy, yes. Yeah. So just a few final post-release anecdotes. This movie was pretty popular at the Razzies. Mm. Uh, Elaine May tied for worst director with Norman Mailer, who'd made a movie called Tough Guys Don't Dance, but they both won the worst director. And this movie was nominated for worst picture and screenplay, and it lost both of those to the Bill Cosby film Leonard Part 6. The, the Bill Cosby spy film. Leonard Part 6. I don't know how we cover that one, Scott. I really don't. I... <laughs> Listen, guys and gals listening. If you want us to tackle Leonard Part 6, we will. You let us know. We will put it on the list. But that guy is... I mean, he's nuclear when it comes to toxicity. I don't know if I want to give him an hour and a half of my time plus three hours watching the film. Yeah, exactly. So that's a challenge for the future, potentially. Um, but Elaine May 
would go on to do a number of noteworthy things. She would reteam with Mike Nichols and work on a number of screenplays for movies like The Birdcage, uh, Primary Colors, which she, she got an Oscar nomination for, and also she did uncredited work on Wolf. And she also won a Tony for her return to Broadway um, a handful of years ago. She never directed another major motion picture, but in 2019, she did announce that she would be directing a movie called Crackpot with Dakota Johnson. Since that announcement, nothing's happened. I mean, the pandemic hit shortly after, so I'm not sure exactly what's going on. But there is the possibility that Elaine May will get one more movie at least out. Well, you're saying that this film is getting an upswell of... Uh... An outcry of reappraisal. Yeah. So yeah, maybe she will get another time at bat. But it sounds like she ended up in director jail. Yeah, more or less, yes. And I mean, over the years, Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman, and Charles Grodin have all defended Ishtar. And uh, as you you know, kind of noted there, and as I mentioned earlier, it seems like to a certain degree they began to get a fair amount of support from the public as well. Okay. Which I, I think maybe we put a pin in and come back to at the end because I have an issue with that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> an ishtar <laughs> I Yeah, that was yeah that was rough there. <laughs> Thank you, Cam. Uh, okay, let's talk about this uh, this film. Yeah, are we uh, are we smucks for hating it, Cam? We are smucks. <laughs> we are smucks. Listen, on paper. This film sounds like an absolute hoot. It's Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty, two very, I always know them as very serious actors, in a comedy about men going through, like, middle age, going through midlife crisis, becoming songwriters together, and then getting involved in a spy caper in, yeah, in Morocco. Hmm. Honestly, what could go wrong? It turns out everything. <laughs> From the ground up, this thing is on rocky foundations. Now, I actually agree with Dustin Hoffman. If this had stayed in New York, I think this would have been a more successful film. I think the first 15, 20 minutes of this film are actually genuinely funny. Okay. Heartfelt and quite funny. Seeing them two like, lose their girlfriends and disappear into this world of becoming songwriters when they clearly have no talent is like listening to this podcast. It's amazing in <laughs> that sense. Uh, but as soon as it just gets to Morocco and the spy plot turns up and there's, you know, all this stuff with this magical map and Isabella Gianni's there and Charles Grodin's there and it's all just like indecipherable when it comes to a plot. So you're just sort of hanging out with your two leads and they go from being like fun, harmless losers too annoying mm -hmm. and the jokes aren't landing and it just feels like they are it feels like an improv the entire way through there's a scene quite later on where dustin hoffman is pretending to speak in whatever language that they're talking there that's how they would have described it at the time dustin please speak in whatever language these people speak <laughs> these guys yeah sure yeah and and i just think like even 80s audiences must have been like, oh. And I'm not sitting here going like in a, in a sort of retroactive, oh, this is, you know, cancel culture nonsense. I just mean it's not funny. Yeah. It's just not funny. It's floundering. You are watching it's, an yeah. actor flounder on screen. Yeah, it's like watching Will Smith in those tubes again. 
It is rough. <laughs> yeah, that's a great example. Yeah. For those that don't remember, in Men in Black 2, there's a scene where Will Smith is in like a pile of plastic tubing and just like thrashes around for an extended period of time. And there's nothing funny, but it's just an actor trying to milk something. Yeah, I can hear the director in the background going, yeah, keep going. Well, this is great. This is great. More. This is more. great. Yeah. yeah. Let, let that one pull you over. Oh, do a flip. Great. You can hear Elaine saying that sort of thing to Dustin, like encouraging him to do more. But also at the same time, it feels like Dustin and Warren were just let loose in Morocco and just given carte blanche to do what they want with these, what they deem to be comical scenes. And there's no one there to tell them no. It's it's like, you know, Lord of the Flies where the kids are <laughs> running the, the, the island. It's, it's, it's disturbing at times that I'm sat here watching this film. And I just, I was just hoping to laugh, genuinely hoping to laugh. But all the stuff about them being singers, it just got me every time. Like I, I grew up in in bands and playing music live and in not so good bands, and trying to write music. And I understand that 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 it's like it should be a surefire injection into my veins of comedy. It's that something I can actually resonate with, and yet it didn't work. And so I just think, oh my god, what what an absolute shame. And these people, I'm going off on one camera. I'm not letting you talk. Sorry. No, no, go, go. I love this. These people that are saying Ishtar deserves to be reappraised. You need to reappraise yourself. <laughs> you need to reappraise how you reappraise things. I have to say, just because a film wasn't good and it was from a female director, doesn't mean it's now good. It can't. You can't retroactively make it good. It isn't funny. And I'm just sticking to it. I'm sorry. <laughs> it isn't funny. It is interesting how, like, Heaven's Gate, you know, the other big debacle, has now also been completely reappraised and is now a great movie. I do think there is a certain aspect of, like, when a really strong, idiosyncratic, interesting director mm-hmm. makes a bad movie, that you give it a couple decades and suddenly people go, well, this is interesting because it, their personality is all over the movie. And so it can't be bad because I like what they bring to film. It's like, you know, I'm a big Spielberg fan and I will sit and watch, you know, Always or Hook's pretty polarizing. I like Hook. I mean, I saw it when I was very young, but that's one that's... I quite like Hook. Yeah, that's one that's yeah. considered one of his worst. But like when I watch any of those lesser Spielberg movies, I can see the Spielberg all over them. So I'm sure mm. that like people are responding to that aspect of Ishtar with Elaine May. Sure. And I don't have that sort of um, connection to her earlier work. No. Um, I didn't watch her earlier comedies. I'm sure that a lot of people who appreciate Ishtar really did love, say, the Heartbreak Kid and see the potential of Ishtar. But there's a big difference to me between potential and what's actually on the screen. Well, okay. Here's some examples that tie into what you just said. Quantum of Solace. We recently went on record with Quantum of Solace saying it was underrated and a quite a good ride. It wasn't good enough to make the knock list, but in terms of Daniel Craig Bond films, it was definitely up there. And they were trying something different and it was exciting. It didn't get the love it deserved and we tried to give it that. On the other hand, there is 1998's The Avengers. Right. Now, we appreciate what that film was trying to do. But when we reviewed it, we also pointed out it was exceedingly flawed. Yeah. And I don't want to like, I don't want to sit here and be like, oh, but you know, they tried. I I guess someone did try to make a film. They just, this is 
one of the worst films I think I've had to sit through. <laughs> well, it was just like... I'm genuinely head- angry about this film, Cam. <laughs> it was head-scratching today listening to some takes where they're just like... I scream with laughter every time I watch this movie. And I'm like, I scream. I scream. <laughs> so I'll give my thoughts on Ishtar. I will say up front, I don't think Ishtar is like a disaster movie. There are worse yeah. things we've talked about on this show. Those Harry Palmer TV movies. Trench coat. Trench coat. Um, one of our dinosaurs is missing. These are all mm-hmm. things that I found far less pleasant to sit through than Ishtar. Ishtar, though, to me, you have a lot of money you have two stars almost at the heights of their powers this is like prime era of both dustin hoffman and warren Beatty. you have a very very promising director with you know three comedies behind her that have been very well received at least critically a lot is going for ishtar and yet (laughs) in spite of all the money and like the people behind the camera working on it, every scene is entirely drained of life. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, to me, Ishtar was a flat line. There was just nothing. And I would sit there and watch scenes of the two of them mugging their way through, you know, bad musical numbers. And I'm like, I know this should be funny. And... It's not working for me. I'm just watching two actors kind of like flounder on screen. That's what it felt like to me. I know a lot of people love the Paul Williams music in this movie. I was just like, uh, okay. I, I actually have to say the, the Dangerous Business song. Uh, I've spent half the day playing that on my various instruments around the house. Yeah. I, I, I am quite uh, smitten with that song. I feel like when it comes to like bad music, intentionally bad written for movies oh yeah it's written that way i come way down more on the side of like christopher guest's music for things like spinal tap and waiting for guffman and all that stuff where it's knowingly bad but it's just fun and catchy enough that you can get into it I mm-hmm. prefer what's going on there. I also don't have the like <laughs> adoration for Simon and Garfunkel that clearly Elaine May and Paul Williams have. And I, I also have that. Do you? I'm a big Simon and Garfunkel fan. Also, uh, yeah, Paul Simon as a solo artist fan. I've seen Paul Simon live twice. Okay. So, yeah, I, 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 I know what they're going for with that sort of double act. Again, another reason why you think this film should work for me former songwriter here fan of uh simon and garfunkel and yet yeah and so like all i could really take from this movie because i i'm scratching my head and we'll get to this probably in dislikes but you know you mentioned one earlier with the whole dustin hoffman playing the auctioneer and attempting to communicate with the locals scene Mm -hmm. there's a few scenes like this through the movie these extended comedy set pieces that are just like they're either really cringe-inducing, and I know that, like, Elaine May was kind of a fan of cringe comedy, so I think that is an aspect of this movie, but, like, mm-hmm. they are cringe-inducing for the wrong reasons, <laughs> and there's a number of them in the movie, and they are often the big comedy set pieces, and I kind of go, like, what is there to hold on to anymore? Like, this is not really working for me comedically at all, and the one thing I can say that I think is interesting was the kind of the swapping casting types. That's something that, like... I would be curious to go back to this time period and start looking at mainstream comedies and seeing how often they were putting legit dramatic actors as sort of your leads playing incredibly dumb, goofy characters. 
And like there were reviews at the time. I think Pauline Kael said like, why didn't you cast Steve Martin and Bill Murray, for example, which would have been like the obvious go. I literally said, where's Chevy Chase and Steve Martin? There you go. Yeah. But maybe like that's what makes this movie more interesting is that you take two people not known for like big comedy like this and you have them playing incredibly dumb characters, like incredibly dumb. And I I almost felt at some times that it was a little ahead of its time. Like it was the sort of thing we'd see, like say Jeff Daniels be doing in Dumb and Dumber. Sure. And people really were quite taken aback that Jeff Daniels could do that sort of thing. And I think that in a different world, if all the things, the elements connect, Ishtar, that's the result of people being like, oh my God, like Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman can do this kind of like very goofy, surreal, weirdo, dumb comedy incredibly well. That was not the result they got, but I think that's what the movie's going for. And that was kind of the element of it I found interesting in an otherwise somewhat dire slog of a movie. Well, I mean, what I found interesting is just how much promise it had. I said it up top, like there on the page, this film should have worked. There's no reason why it shouldn't have worked. You've got a, an award-winning screenwriter as its director. I think you say she won some awards as a director as well at that point. Uh, no, no, she was just quite acclaimed for some early work. Okay, uh, but also, you know, award-winning actors in the, in the leads. You just think, it, and all the money they threw into it too. You just think it would work. It it just didn't. But I I I want to get the nice stuff out of the way before we really tear into it. No, before, you know, let's praise films like we do, and we should. I will start by saying I think the chemistry between Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty is very good. I'm not sure the comedy works, but yeah. when they are actually together, it's quite fun. It is interesting to see these two playing these kind of two idiots mm-hmm. because it is you know as i was saying a few minutes ago like that's not something you would expect from either one of them no. and they do make an interesting team i wish they had funnier things to say <laughs> but yeah yeah like i in particular was impressed with warren Beatty. dustin hoffman is pretty good at playing these kind of like high wire kind of like kind of antic dudes like that's the sort of thing you kind of expect it's a little bit twisted here where he is this you know ladies man referred to as the hawk like that's kind of funny but i feel like in terms of what dustin hoffman's doing it's not light years away from what you might see him do in say a movie like lenny or something like that but warren Beatty, this is not at all a typical warren Beatty turn and to see him actually kind of pulling off this guy who's like kind of like this big dumb oaf who's just like, you know, really insecure, really awkward around women. I felt like he actually was doing a really good job in pulling it off. Like, I feel like Warren Beatty is, were it not for the lack of laughs throughout this movie, I would say he's giving a pretty good performance and invested in trying something different. Like, he's committing to it. It's just that it's not working for me when I get to the bigger hole. Well, I mean, this is the thing. Scientists may fail at their experiment, but they do a good job, even if they fail, because they they you know that doing that sort of stuff. Actors are giving a good performance, just with bad material. Yeah, I think I think they're both raising it as much as they can. I'm I'm not sure I buy Dustin Hoffman as like the sexy guy. <laughs> I think that's like the joke though, right? Because like sure, like that 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 is the joke when you have Warren Beatty saying like. 
Oh, man, you just got the looks. You've got the personality. <laughs> like, that's pretty funny. It is. It is. And that also happens in the New York section, I'll point out. It does, yes. Mm. And probably, like, the best scene of them together, I'm going to argue, is the ledge scene, where Dustin it's Hoffman's character yeah. Yeah, is... And all the parents turn up and stuff. They're all leaning out the window. That's quite funny. The rabbi? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that was probably the only bit of the film I laugh out loud. It felt like kind of surreal and quirky, like the sort yeah. of thing you might see in a um, more comedic like Woody Allen film, because some of his movies are a little more serious. Like in some of the really goofy ones, you might have a scene like that. And I just thought like, okay, using that as like the germ of your movie, it's the sort of thing that like, a movie like Dumb and Dumber, which is a different type of comedy, very different approach than what, you know, the Farrelly brothers are doing there. But that similar kind of like two dudes who are just complete, you know, <laughs> idiots playing off each other. The ledge scene does it the best and kind of represents, I think, what could have been. Yeah. And it's interesting that they filmed these. I'm learning this from you, obviously. They filmed these scenes after mm-hmm. when they really worked on their characters, I think. Mm hmm. It was probably too late at that point to turn it around and do it all in New York, and that that's fine. Something you liked? I'll name another performance. I thought Charles Grodin was actually quite good in this movie as the CIA handler. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's not winning material, but there's like a real dryness to everything Charles Grodin says in this movie that I found kind of amusing. Um, especially when it's just like him at the end sitting there watching their big performance, which... I just didn't find the performance very funny, but I would kind of like Clap. smile. Applaud. <laughs> I would smile when it would just cut to like Charles Grodin making very dry remarks about the uh, performance. Yeah. I actually wrote down about his performance and also kind of about the the spy story. It feels very much like a proto burn after reading. Yeah. And I, I actually, I'm glad you mentioned burn after reading because I thought of Brad Pitt um, while watching this movie when I was looking at the Warren Beatty performance where you have someone who is considered like at that time you know the biggest sex symbol male sex symbol in Hollywood and to be playing someone who's so like doofy and made to look unattractive that's something that Brad Pitt has often tried to do in his work and I think is far more um, acclaimed for it than what Warren Beatty was getting in 1987. It doesn't have to try as hard as we do, obviously. <laughs> Not at all. We don't have to try to be unattractive. <laughs> no. We wake up that way. <laughs> Born with it. But, like, you look at that Brad Pitt performance in Burn After Reading, there's some similarities there between him and, like, Warren Beatty. Yeah, like, completely oblivious. Uh, kind of a goofball. Yeah. I, 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 and, but also just, like, the spy story itself. Very, like, childlike in some ways. Like, they don't really have a mean bone in their body. No. Well, yeah, he runs to the aid of the uh, the leftist communists, as they're referred to in this film, because he sees a pretty face. He's not actually ideologically trying to follow them. He's just trying to be nice to a girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, in terms of other likes, I, I kind of mentioned the New York section. I think that's the most powerful, uh, fluent part of the film. Uh, other than that, I would say Isabella Johnny, she's giving it her all, man. It's a no-win scenario, but... Uh, it really is. Yeah, like, this movie um, does not write the best female character here for Isabella Johnny, but no. she does what she can and emerges, I'd say, pretty unscathed. 
I'm not sure why they needed to do the whole bare breast thing really early on in the film. I felt that was a bit much. I thought that was really strange. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's a female director. Like, you could totally picture 80s dude director being like... Right. Like, a yeah. guy, he's got a cigar. He's like, yeah, yeah, get her top off. Nah. But it's it's a woman supporting another woman. I, I would assume everyone was, you know, consenting to it all. But yeah. it just feels like the scene didn't need it. I, I don't have answers. It was just it just threw me. I, I saw it. I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> but by that point, I was already a bit lost in the film anyway, so it, it wasn't that surprising. The only other like I had was just sort of that they were filming on location. I thought that it's hard to make that place look bad. Well, I'll jump off of that. This movie looks often quite beautiful. Yeah. Like, the locations in Morocco look incredible. This movie, the cinematographer was uh, Vittorio Storero, who won three Oscars over his career. Um, and, I mean, made some movies like, oh, I don't know, Apocalypse Now, The Last Emperor. Oh. He was the cinematographer on Dick Tracy, which, ah. I mean, that movie is beautiful looking. Um, so, incredibly acclaimed and just, like, one of the great eyes. And I think regardless of the comedy dying <laughs> on the floor of Ishtar, this movie looks like a million bucks. Like you can see, like there's movies that we've tackled and will tackle in the future that cost a heck of a lot of money where you go, this looks like crap. Like mm -hmm. you look at something like some of these, uh, you know, Netflix action movies, you know, that are out there that cost like a hundred. The Gray Man. The Gray Man. Sure. Yeah. It costs like a hundred, $150 million dollars. And looks like just digital garbage. Mm -hmm. And I look at Ishtar and I go, this movie looks beautiful. Like, the handful of people that saw this in the theaters would have seen something quite picturesque on the widescreen. Yeah, they, they filmed a good-looking film. Again, on paper, this, this all should work. Uh, but going on location, I think, definitely helped them and gave them a lot to work with. Although I, I find a lot of times they get lost especially in the desert like that, that all feels like a waste of the location because that just could have been filled on the back lot somewhere yeah yeah and apparently like the um the sand and like dunes didn't look the way that elaine may and team expected them to look so the crew had to kind of like basically <laughs> like comb them into a, a a shape that looked decent like it didn't quite look right that's uh that's gonna cost you a pretty penny Yes, exactly. I'm sure the union was just like rubbing its hands together, being like, oh, oh. oh our members are going to make so much money on this movie. <laughs> we'll have to work overtime for this one. <laughs> I, I'm already fresh out of likes, unfortunately. But Cam, do you have anything else? Sure, buzzards. I was very happy to see the uh, vultures in this movie. Um, they were actually pretty interesting to see them running back and forth. This is like a weird thing to mention, but like, you remember when we talked about Never See Never Again? You keep vultures. <laughs> you remember in Never Seen Ever Again, there's like the vultures in that like tomb where Bond gets tied up and they do yeah. nothing with them. Like nothing. Mm -hmm. This movie made the most of its vultures. This is the receipt to Never Seen Ever Again. It is. And I have a question. Is a vulture a buzzard? Or are they two separate things? I can answer this one for you, Cam, but that's only because we took a pause for me to Google it. Yeah. Vultures and buzzards are different. Oh, interesting. Buzzards are smaller than vultures, and they prefer to hunt and attack and eat their prey uh, while they're alive. Okay, so I would say these were buzzards. But nonetheless, these uh, 
you know, birds that eat dead things. Um, they were used better here than they were in Never Say Never Again. What a missed opportunity that was in Never Say Never Again, by the way. It totally was. Go ahead and like pecking at Bond a little bit, and then he gets out and kicks him or something. Like he was already about to ride a horse off the building anyway, so we're already you know, in for a penny and for a pound when it comes to animal cruelty. Sure, yeah, and I mean the buzzards in this movie actually kind of got you know a mild smile out of me, where they're like running back and forth, and you have like Warren Beatty doing double takes at them a couple times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I am fresh out of likes unfortunately I'm going to take us over unless you have anything else I got nothing yeah we interrupt this program to bring you a special report attention spy hards die hards independent podcasting much like the spy game requires considerable resources whether it's research equipment hosting or of course constructing a hidden moon base we're putting out the call for your support that's right the spy hards patreon is the home to our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors, and The Debrief, where we activate our billion-dollar brains and predict how the spy movie news of today will shape tomorrow. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Well, Scott, we're going to answer the eternal question. What happens when two weary podcasters meet 12 angry men? Because this week we are going to tackle the 1957 Sidney Lumet classic, 12 Angry Men. So accept your mission and hop in the Hellmobile today at patreon.com slash spyhearts. But before Spectre agents intercept this broadcast, let's get back to the spy jinx. Dislike time. The rest of the film. (laughs) (laughs) Discuss. No, let's be slightly more objective with it. I think it's impossible to have a successful comedy film when your jokes aren't funny. Does this movie have jokes? It's more like situational comedy. Which makes sense if you've got Elaine May coming from a world of improv, that it's like the situation and the reactions. But it's like, there's sometimes with improv where it just doesn't work. Like, we've seen movies with, like, incredibly brilliant comedic actors and you could get the sense when you're watching the movie that they were basically told improv improv come up with something Mm -hmm. make this work you know we don't have anything to fill in the scene quick come up with something and you'll watch incredibly talented people you know like Kristen Wiig or Melissa McCarthy I'm not just naming Ghostbusters Whoopi Goldberg Jumpin' Jack Flash Whoopi Goldberg yeah like you'll see these comedic talents just start riffing Mm -hmm. and it's like you can tell when it's not working Sasha Baron Cohen another one I've seen him just like stink up the joint, be basically being told to just fill up comedy scenes and things like, you know, the second Alice in Wonderland movie. And it's like, this does Oof. not work at all. And I just felt that here where it's like two actors who are just trying to make it work, but it's not working. It must be really tough as a comedian or as an actor when you're doing a comedy because you don't have a crowd. Mm. You can't get that instant feedback. You don't know if a joke is necessarily landing. And that's why a lot of comedians like go on mini tours before they go on tour and like perfect their material. You don't get to do that with a comedy film. You really do get kind of one shot at it, and if it lands, then it lands. Because say for instance, even if this was tested at test audiences, and no one laughed, and it was, you couldn't have gone back and reshot it. No, and it actually they said tested modestly well. Well, that's actually something I want to come back to in a little bit because it didn't influence... Actually, let's do it now. We're in dislikes. Yeah. It didn't influence me 
But you said that earlier on that this film had quite a stink going into the release. Yes. And obviously, it had a good opening weekend, but not a great follow-up after that. I'm sure the stink didn't help it, but I don't think that the marketing department and whoever published this could say that was the reason it failed, because I think it was down to the film itself. Well, okay, like, this was a movie that got a lot of, like, you know, I think Ebert gave it, like, half a star in his review. There was a lot of reviews that were basically like, this is the worst thing you could ever imagine, you know, in a major motion picture. Do you agree with that? No. This is a two-star film. That's where I sit as well. Like, there are movies where they are hacked to shreds. And this movie had, you know, (laughs) as we said, three teams of editors. But this one, I would say when the movie's dealing with its spy plot that we can talk about, I'm sure, in a a moment or two, just how convoluted that gets. Oh, it's coming. It doesn't feel like it's mangled in the editing room. And there are movies... I remember seeing, like, the Fantastic Four reboot Mm -hmm. um, from a few years ago. That was a movie you could just tell was put through the studio wood chipper and whatever wound up on screen was barely coherent that's not the case with ishtar i can say that things get overly confusing Mm -hmm. but it holds together as a movie it doesn't feel like i'm watching something that's just inept it just feels like it's misguided i i completely agree i think it's misguided and and i would say like i would actually rather re-watch this film than watch something like jurassic world dominion sure like, at least this was trying to do something. And that movie's, yeah, more inept than this is in terms yeah. of the filmmaking. Um, or I could even say Taken 2, which was a big hit. Mm-hmm. And you look at the way that that movie's assembled. Uh, I'm sorry, that's far inferior to the editing and filmmaking going on with this film. Yep, absolutely. But I think the biggest dislike I have is in the structure of the film. You can't have a comedy that isn't funny. It's hard. That's a challenge. That's an uphill battle, Scott. <laughs> well, you look at you look at something like um, well, the sort of comedy this is going for, because actually it is cringe comedy, which the, us Brits tend to sort of celebrate quite a lot. Personally, I really can't stand cringe comedy. I really struggle with shows like The Office, especially the British one, where I'm just like, I, I want to crawl out of my skin. I'd rather go for like yuck, yuck funny. That's more my kind of thing. Right. So you think this would be up my street, but you think of something like Seinfeld, for instance. That's a, a show that isn't about anything, according mm-hmm. to Seinfeld. It, it's not set up in punchline. It's like an overarching joke and then situations that happen to our characters throughout. But that's still written in an interesting and smart way with funny setups and funny sort of what-if scenarios. Seeing Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty hauling around a blind camel just doesn't do it for me. That camel is running the scene. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the camel's in control through those scenes. And, you know, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll give some points and just say, good acting work there, camel. You did a decent job. But, um, yeah, it, it's like, it goes back to that thing about um, actors flailing. And, you know, you mentioned Seinfeld, but I'm a big fan also of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is far more cringy than even Seinfeld is. And Mm -hmm. to me, like, the key to what makes those things work is they are finely calibrated. Yeah. And it comes across as a very specific vision. Whereas, like, this, I'm sorry, like, when you have the scenes early on in New York of them just playing these two idiots, I'm like, okay, this works. Like, I understand the dynamic. I'm not finding it very funny, 
but I get what they're trying to communicate. Sure. When you get to Morocco, and I've got the scenes that we mentioned, the auction stuff with Dustin Hoffman. We've got the homophobic stuff with uh, Isabella Johnny being mistaken for a boy and like Warren Beatty punching her in the face. I've got a note that says, Warren Beatty is not gay. Yeah, or Dustin Hoffman, because he does the same thing. He That's doesn't true. punch her, but he gets similarly uh, very offended and angry about it. Um, when I'm having those sorts of set pieces, or one of the least funny things you can ever do is just have like two goofy characters run around with machine guns firing at helicopters at the end of the movie. Yep. None of this stuff lands for me at all. It just It's either a very expensive set piece, which is going to kill comedy. Like there's a reason that like comedy doesn't depend on big action scenes and car chases to work typically. And why Mm -hmm. the original Ghostbusters was such a miracle that you could actually merge those two things successfully. Um, You know, big effects and action with comedy, but that's not something that usually works or just like extended comedic riffings moments that aren't funny. I, uh, I wrote about that sort of uh, gun scene at the end. I wrote down a spy film. It reminded me of, that we have covered. Can you think of it? Um, is it set in the desert? No. Okay. Um, does it involve helicopters? <laughs> no. Oh, geez. How would I ever guess this? <laughs> it's, that, that is fair. It was basically awkward people with guns. I went to Condor Man with oh. Michael Crawford and his cane. Sure. Yeah. And just writhing around the floor, shooting that cane off into the air. It it felt like exactly the same thing. It wasn't funny then, and it isn't funny now. Yeah, I mean that entire action set piece at the end. It doesn't land. Like it, it's not funny. It's not exciting. I don't know what it is. The only bit of amusement I can get out of it is the cutbacks to like Charles Grodin and just his dry response. The, the burn after reading stuff. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, something you disliked? Let's dive into the spy plot, Scott. We've put it off long enough. How can we yeah. dive into the spy plot? It's it's indecipherable. So the gist of it, for those that didn't watch the movie, is that Isabella Johnny's um, brother in the film was a archaeologist, I believe. Or working for one. Yeah, who found a map that uh, revealed that the ruling kingdom's what was it? They had gold or something in there? The, I, I thought it revealed that two people would come and lead them to overthrowing the government. There was definitely that. that it, yeah. Yeah, two people would be basically, two messengers from God would lead to revolt, essentially, and the yeah. current power would topple. But wasn't there something about, like, gold or something in the walls of the building or something, like riches for the people? Yeah, I think it was because the emir of Ishtar, who sort of, the ruler of Ishtar, who is suppressing uh, Isabella Ajani's uh, people, uh, has a roof of gold in his temple. Right. So they think that gold should be for the people. Uh, and that's just the start of it. Yeah. So you've got your MacGuffin there, which is this map. And the search for this map gets very convoluted and confusing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's okay. I think in a you know in a movie where... It's kind of this comedy about two doofuses. It makes sense for a MacGuffin that kind of keeps people on their toes and they're always chasing it through the movie. You know, Hitchcock can do that sort of thing very well. But you yeah. apply that to something goofball it works. Now, I would say it doesn't really work here. I could never invest myself at all in this map. And it just got confusing at a certain point as to what was even going on with the map. 
Well, they stopped talking about it for a long period of the film. They did. Like yes. it was, it was more just about trying to get the bag, and then the map turned out to be sewn into someone's jacket. Yes, which is briefly mentioned, and then the map disappears, and then it appears in the jacket, and then they're kind of at the end of the film. Yeah, but then they like kind of pollute the waters because they suddenly introduce the CIA element, mm-hmm. which has interest in there not being a revolt. Um, and so they are then tied into the search for the map. Cam, Cam, what was harder to figure out? This plot or Tenet? Uh, Tenet will always take the crown on that one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> but then you have the, like the setting up that Warren Beatty's character is like, uh, uh like, leftist agent of some sort yeah but then also dustin hoffman is under suspicion so neither man can trust the other and then there's a love triangle and like instantaneously like the cia are wary of warren Beatty because the woman came to his room yes that's right she came to his room but dustin hoffman at the airport even before that met this woman and just handed her his passport, which was like a real mind blower to me. I'm like, who would ever yeah. do this? <laughs> I, yeah. Uh, I, it, it leads to like a really, there is a moment that it actually is slightly funny where you have all those different people tailing them through the market. Yeah, yeah. Falling over each other, which reminded me of a different film that's completely slipped my memory. But it, again, it's a sort of inept uh, different bureaus from different places trying to bring someone down. It's actually like a, a maybe it's a funny version of the the, the three five five. I actually thought of three five five. There was a scene kind of like that, where they're all different different companies chasing the, the one person. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah, in the market. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Two great films. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> line them up, line them up. That's that's a double bill I want to go to. And actually, one of the agents pursuing them was played by Matt Frewer, and Matt Frewer showed up in the uh, Fourth Protocol as the, the like the kind of the. I don't know, rednecky dude on the base that went out. Was it? Was it bowling or to a bar or something? And then his wife was hitting on Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, they went. They went bowling, and then they went to a bar, and then Pierce Brosnan almost slept with his wife. Yeah, Actually, so, she almost slept with him. He turned her down. That's right. But Matt Frewer was the was the guy, the kind of the aw shucks goofy guy. Yeah, in the most American bar in the world. That's right. Yes. Yeah. But so suffice to say, I'm not sure we can take this spy plot apart because I think it was, it sounds like it was two different plots pulled into one. Okay. You and I both said up front, we have not watched the uh, the road movies with Bing Crosby and Bob Hope. I would be shocked if the plots to those movies were as convoluted as the plot for Ishtar. They couldn't be. Not with Bing Crosby and Bob Hope. They, they got to be, get to the thing, get the thing, go back. Or something exactly. Like that. Yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest problems is that, like, in theory, you want, with a comedy, the comedy to lead the audience through the movie. Mm-hmm. But this movie gets so bogged down in plot that it's pretty tough to for the comedy to kind of lift above it. When mm-hmm. I'm sitting there listening to things be explained and I'm kind of scratching my head and the characters are having to, like, shift back and forth depending on what the needs of the plot are... It's tough. I tend to think it's better to set up a basic conflict, which 
you know what? Go with the map. The map's important. The CIA want it. There you go. And yeah. run with that as opposed to like all the other complications. Because as you said, this movie's so confusing by the end. Yeah, and you're just, I think by the end, by the time they're in the desert, you're just sort of witnessing it. Like, I don't know why they told them to go to the desert. Right. Or or either, because both parties were told to go to the desert, one by Ajani, one by the CIA. And they were told they would be picked up, and they're not. And then they end up at the auction scene for some reason. And then they're just in the desert for a while, and then they shoot some helicopters. Like, you just... Nothing leads to anything else. It's like they didn't think through the plot. They didn't have their ending at the start. They just kind of like, yes, and, yes, and, yes, and we're here. And I think if you look at a movie like Burn After Reading, which I would be remiss not to mention, which also has a very convoluted plot that goes nowhere, very much by design, the movie's very fast-paced. It is not stopping everything dead to constantly explain things. Mm -hmm. And like, the joke is how convoluted it gets. And it makes it very clear to the audience that that is the humor. Like, that is what is funny, is that things are getting so complicated. Did this movie give you the sense that it understood the joke was how convoluted it was? No. They thought the joke was Hoffman and, and Beatty being in that situation. Yes. Which isn't funny. It could in theory, but yes, I, I agree. Like, I don't think this movie understands that, like, it is selling a story that is so far beyond understanding mm. that that's what's funny. And also, like you mentioned Burn After Reading. Burn After Reading doesn't, after 15 minutes, go to, I don't know, Turkey. Right. Like the, 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 the employees of the gym don't go to Turkey for some reason. Mm-hmm. They all, they're in that, within that weird world. Like if the spy plot came to them in New York, whilst they were trying to make their debut single. I think that could have been funnier. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, but then, like, I'm, I'm not a comedy writer. I, I feel bad for tearing this thing to pieces, but I'm, I'm frustrated by the, the, the core idea of having a comedy film that isn't funny. Yeah. But comedy is so subjective at the same time. It's like, true. maybe this is funny to some people. Oh, a lot of people. Get on Letterboxd. It is oh. a celebration of the magic of uh, Ishtar. I said it at the start, people. Reappraise how you reappraise it. <laughs> it's not all for internet clout. No one cares. I mean, today's trash is tomorrow's treasure, right? Sure. Sure, sure, sure. I don't know. I mean, I, I have these other lists of like dislikes. I think the casting was probably wrong. Like I think you said earlier, like it, it probably would have been better if it was like Steve Martin and Chevy Chase or Martin Short or something like that. I'd say the casting is what makes this movie kind of interesting. But that doesn't make it good. <laughs> well, just maybe the jokes could have been better served by people who are comedians. Yeah, it's true. Maybe. Uh, I would say also the tone jumps around a little bit in this film. Like it's deadly serious at times. And then other times they're doing that sort of spy chase outside the hotel where all the different people are sneaking up behind them and they're stopping and turning the other way. Like I don't know if it knows what it wants to be, but that does sort of follow on with the film being completely indecipherable because no one can figure out what it is well like the movie turns into like full-blown cartoon at times yeah when you're watching like the uh say them lost in the desert and dustin hoffman is like dying and really camping it up big time but then they like cut to them like engaged in a firefight with helicopters 
And it's like, these two things do not feel similar. I mean, I will say I was disappointed because Dustin Hoffman loads a grenade launcher and no one uses it. Yeah, that was frustrating. Why was that? Yeah, I really wanted to see him blow up a helicopter. I don't know why. I mean, do you think in that 108 hours of footage that existed? Oh, definitely. It's probably him writhing on the floor firing the <laughs> grenade launcher. <laughs> out, out, out there somewhere in someone's editing suite is a uh, is a cut together of Condor Man and Ishtar. Yeah. I had a question for you. I have many questions. <laughs> <laughs> Their musical act is terrible. That is without doubt in mm-hmm. this movie. But, like, there's a scene where they're performing in Morocco. And, like, the audience is really into it. Yeah. And it goes on for an extended period of time. And it's, like, I think they're playing covers at that point. But, like, they're terrible, terrible performances of covers that they keep showing these, like, you know, the, all these people in the crowd just loving it. And mm-hmm. I made note. I'm, like, are they supposed to be good at this point? I have no idea what's going on. Well, I think I, I think they are good at doing the lounge act Vegas crooner which is what they pretend they're doing like Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra yeah. songs, basically rap pack songs. Yeah. I think they are quite good at that because Dustin Hoffman has a good voice and Warren Beatty can play piano. That's proven in the film. So they, they combined have some talent. They're just putting it in the wrong place. Right. Yeah. Which makes sense when you see the compositions they're actually uh, yeah. And recording. Well, I, I suppose we're in like the sort of final thoughts section, I guess, and we've drifted over to it. I have a bunch of questions. Maybe we'll blitz through them. And yeah, the go sort for of it. Notes I've got. But, I mean, I wrote down this as Midlife Crisis, the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I definitely felt that. Like, I've, I've been in bands before. I've written songs, and I understand that process. And I know you've got that Bond song out there that you and your sister wrote that we've not yet heard, but we will get that made someday. Right. But what, what's been your experience with sort of writing in the past? Um, well, I did uh, <laughs> write and record a rap album in my early 20s mm. with my friend. Um, so I have done that. And I've done some novelty songs along the way. I did a couple Star Trek spoof songs that are on YouTube somewhere. Uh, can we have an Ishtar spoof song, please? No, I'm not putting the hours uh, into making that. <laughs> what was your uh, what was your MC name? Uh, I was C4 because it's explosive. Ooh. Oh, <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Uh, do you want to hear one of? I, I wrote down some of them, but the 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 dorkiest band name I had. Okay. We were called Lab Thirteen. That's not that bad. Well, guess where we were founded? I don't know. In 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 Lab Number Thirteen. Yeah, but like lab, I think kind of like science fiction-y or like mad scientist. That's not bad. Uh, we weren't doing like geek rock. <laughs> it was new metal. <laughs> it was all new metal. It was all like new metal versions uh, or covers of Blinded Me With Science. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And, and Dangerous Business from this very film, funnily Oh, enough. of course, yes. Of course. Um, what, what are your notes, please, Cam? I had a few small notes I will mention. We've talked about actors who popped up in this movie. You know, Matt Frewer, for example. Mm -hmm. There was a real blink-and-you'll-miss-it one, which was actor Dylan Baker, who has been in many things. uh, The movie Happiness, back in the late 90s. He was also Kurt Connors in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. He was sitting in the audience watching their act 
like near the start of the movie. There was one shot of him and then it cut away. And I went and double checked. It was him. So this is like very early extra work for him. Yes. Why haven't we, why haven't we got him on the show as an interview this week? What was it like working <laughs> on Ishtar? How were those 15 minutes? Were they amazing? <laughs> Did they feel like the lifetime it felt like watching this film? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I I just wrote down... It's kind of like a double-ended question. Firstly, who is Chuck and who is Lyle out of the two of us? Okay. Um, I think I have more of... Uh, I feel like I have more of the Dustin Hoffman energy in person. You think I'm the Warren Beatty of the two of us? Well, I'm not really taking into account like how they were perceived by others in the movie. I just think in terms of energy level. You think you're the more energetic of us in person? I think maybe. Wow. Okay. <laughs> but like the more the neurotic energy. Not like just just buzzing at all times. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I've never seen myself as like the awkward guy in a corner. I've never really been that. Maybe maybe it's not good to compare us as those two because I think we're both quite I, I'm not I'm not including that. I'm not saying like awkward or all that stuff. I mean more in terms of just the energy level. Like what you kind of give off, the vibe. I, yeah, I suppose I'm I'm more cool, calm, and collected than in that sense. Yeah, that's what I mean. Okay. More. Okay. So uh, you're also you know, positioning yourself as the handsome one. I see you. I see you, Cam. In the warped world of Ishtar, yes. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I'm the blind camel, so it's all fine. <laughs> I do feel like we are each combinations of each character. <laughs> we are. We certainly are. And this film, in many ways, is kind of like a encapsulation of Spy Hearts. Yeah. Two smucks being nerdy. And mm. as such, if this was a documentary about our life, who would be playing us? And you can't say Dustin Hoffman. Okay. Um God, that's really I, I I'm so bad at like the fan casting thing. Regardless mm. of myself, I mean just in terms of anything fan casting. Um I'm like trying to think of like even you, I, and I struggle with this. Do you have any ideas? Well, when I had hair, I always used to think I would be played by Zach Braff in a film about my life. Oh, I'm not seeing that at all. No. <laughs> I, 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 I obviously think I'm far more energetic than I am in person, <laughs> given what you just said about me. <laughs> uh, maybe not. Yeah, maybe I think I have a chance for Florence Pugh. Maybe it's that. I don't know. Uh, mm. I'll go with now I'm bald. I'll go with Paul Giamatti. <laughs> I was going to say maybe Steve at Merchant. For me? <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? He's like six foot eight. That's like yeah, a whole so foot what? on me. <laughs> so what? Okay, sure. Uh, all right. Steven, uh, Steven Merchant. Does that mean you're. Uh, oh, I don't know who would you be. Oh, let's try and think. I'm trying to think of someone that often wears a cap. That's not helping me. Matthew Vaughn, <laughs> the director. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um Oh, who was the chap that played uh Mutt in Indiana Jones 4? Shia LaBeouf? Yeah. He's got that kind of weird neurotic energy going on. I feel like Shia LaBeouf is not in a particularly good place in the industry these days, but uh or in popular culture, but uh Nor are we. That's true. <laughs> okay, I'll take it, but uh, uh not some of the negative headlines, please. I didn't know he had any, sorry. But uh, Stephen does, yes. Merchant and uh, Shia LaBeouf in a film coming to you soon. Spy Hards. 
No. Yeah, I, I couldn't help but also take note of the fact that they referred to um, Ishtar and Morocco as ancient, devious world. And I was like, oof, 1987, Colin. <laughs> Is that like a quick cut to the Dustin Hoffman auction scene after that? <sighs> More or less. It's actually not too far away. Uh, but... Um, it just reminds me of some of the lyrics to the opening song of Aladdin that were cut. And that would have been five years later. But uh, there was some rewriting going on on that Aladdin movie. And uh, yeah, uh, lines like that have not aged well. I'm not surprised, nor has this film. No. God, these people reappraising it on Letterboxd. I need to have a chat with them. I wonder what is their scene that we're not. They just love the dynamics. And it seems like that's what I hear the most. The dynamics and just like wall-to-wall laughs. To be fair, I praise the chemistry between the two of them. I think they have a great chemistry. I just don't find this film funny. No. 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 Well, uh, perhaps the most redundant question ever since they made a film called Ishtar. Cam, is Ishtar making the knock list? No. Uh, no, it is not. But I will say, I don't think it's making the disavowed list either. Like, it feels to me, as you said, it's like two-star movie. It doesn't mm. feel like... The absolute debacle that the movies that typically make that list are, this one's just like, it's like I said, it's so, so flat. Like, it just offers me almost nothing. Well, I think to be on the disavowed list, you need to be either dreadful in the sense of, like, offensively bad. Or dull to the point of, I want to claw my own eyes out. Now, this leads more to dull and clawing my own eyes out. But I think it does too many interesting things to talk about for it to be disavowed. Yeah, that's where I sit with it as well. Yeah, but it's a, it's a no from me too if you hadn't already guessed. And, uh, do you know, overall, I think it was an interesting film to look at. I I don't... It's actually strange because if Ishtar was known as, like, the great flop, like, was it one of the ones that people look to as, like, one of the worst films of all time? And they say the same thing about Waterworld. Now, I quite... I don't mind, I'm not going to say I like Waterworld. I don't mind Waterworld. I think it was fine. I say this is a little bit worse than Waterworld, but like Waterworld's maybe two and a half stars and this is two. Yeah, I think that's a yeah pretty safe statement. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think either are offending me or exciting me. I think I maybe am just more won over by Mad Max riffing than I am by <laughs> road movie <laughs> riffing. By camel riffing. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like... Mm. I don't have the uh, the love of Hope and Crosby pictures where I'd like to see a lesser version, but I do like Mad Max movies, so I would like to watch a lesser movie of that set in the water. I would like to put Ishtar in a barrel. <laughs> Uh-oh. Bob no. won't call back. Oh. Well, there you go, folks. Uh, two no's, and as such, Ishtar is not making the knock list. And as such, the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified Cameron. The question goes to you, sir. What on earth are we talking about next week? Yeah, we're talking about a fairly obscure one. One from actually the era when those Crosby and Hope movies were really popular. We're going back to the year 1943 to talk about Tonight We Raid Calais. Yeah, we're doing one of our usual going back and finding a bit of a potential hidden treasure. This film actually can be found on YouTube. 
with some very quick searching. We'll put a link in the show notes below next week. But hey, it's got you know John Sutton. Lee J. Cobb is coming back from his time with Derek Flint once again on the show. So a lot to discuss. And I've been to Calais, so it's always nice to talk about it. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Mm. I haven't raided it, though. <laughs> yet. Not yet. Next week, we raid Calais. <laughs> There you go, folks. Well, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to join us next week as we watch tonight. We raid Calais. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts and supporting us on Patreon if you have the dimes to spare. Do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, folks... This one's probably going to get us blacklisted in Marrakesh. Yeah.